0: tricks, but the hate still troll.
1: I love Hammer Show! I love Hammer Show! I love Hammer Show! This is the Haber Show pod relaunch. Howard Beck, welcome to the show. Congratulations, Sports Illustrated's newest I, senior writer, I guess is the right term. Um, writer at Sports Illustrated.
0: Congratulations. Albert Beck. Thank you, Tom Haberstroh. Appreciate it, my friend. Um, yes, yeah, senior writer, which really just means I've got a lot of gray in my beard. Now, um, there are more wrinkles. You have to, or like senior, I've seen senior writer, uh, uh, bestowed on some, some younger folks in the last several years that it really kind of rubbed me wrong. Like, you gotta, you gotta have some wounds. You gotta have some, like some, like some battle wounds in this business first, and some grays and some wrinkles. I think before you earn the senior title. So, um, yes, senior writer SI. I am absolutely thrilled. would well, oh, you go? Oh, where you go to college? where I go to college? Yeah, UC Davis. Go Ags. Okay,
2: so, so if we travel back in time to collegiate Howard Beck. He's uh he's, he's he's in I'm assuming a journalism program, right?
0: Uh English major. No journalism wow. program at UC Davis. The UCs wow. the UCs hmm. do not believe in undergrad programs that are tailored to a specific vocation. It is beneath really? the UCs to do that. Really? So you, you cannot well, get a journalism degree in an undergrad program at a UC. Can you, you can a, go to
2: What about engineering? Because that's kind of yeah, like, know,
1: where where are these like sub-disciplines – yeah. how do they determine
0: what's like the, yeah. the major discipline rather than the minor? That's a, that's a really good question. I just know – like you can get a master's in journalism at UCLA and, and UC Berkeley. Um, I don't know if, if any of the other UCs – I'm sure some of them do that. But in the undergrad, at least when I was there, which was a long time ago, there were no undergrad programs in, in, in journalism at all. So I, I was an English major, but my real – like my, if I, if my degree reflected what I actually did for my time at UC Davis, it would my degree would have said uh, Bachelors of the California Aggie, which was the student newspaper because I spent all of my waking hours in the basement of uh, Lower Freeborn Hall at UC Davis where the California Aggie operated because that – I lived it. That was all I did was the newspaper, much to the chagrin of my professors.
2: So, so, so this is the part where I'm kind of – I'm trying to imagine young Howard Beck working in the basement of that hall, which name escapes me already. No, <laughs> <free boy. laughs> <laughs> we work, Working on the Aggie. And then you, 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 Doc Brown jumps out of the DeLorean and says, hey, <laughs> in your career, you're going to cover the Lakers when they're winning championships. Uh, you know, The Knicks when work they're up, not. Working for the LA Daily News. Then you're going to work for the Knicks when they're not you know, working for the New York times. And at some point you're also going to work for sports illustrated. I mean, it almost sounds like a dream come
0: true, right? How much cursing can we do on this pod? Mr. Oh, Habershow? A lot of it encouraged. My head would have fucking exploded. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, like beyond exploded. I don't know what beyond exploded would be, but it would be in a lot of pieces. Um, no, I mean, look, I said this on on Twitter the other day when I, you know, announced that the, the job uh, change, the new job, um, sports illustrated was the dream from the time I ever even had a notion of being a sports writer and, you know, um, I, you know, I, I was I was young when Montana hits Dwight Clark for for the catch and I'm a Bay Area kid who grew up in San Jose and the Niners were my team and like that's like my seminal moment, right? That's the when you know everything every like synapse fires like I'm just like hooked on sports fandom but especially with the 49ers at that time. The Warriors were not very good when I was growing up, so I never really had a Warriors thing. Um they might have been a team I not nominally rooted for, but it was it was the Niners. And then that Leads me down a path where I subscribe to Sports Illustrated starting when I was like 12 or 13. I had an SI subscription continuously through to, to today and, you know, was devouring the sounds in Mercury News sports section every morning. So like that, the, my whole track of sports writing, um, wanting to, to do this for a career goes back to those like preteen to early teen years. And yeah, SI was the pinnacle. And I idolized those writers. I loved the magazine. I went to college, UC Davis, started working at, at the Aggie, at the student paper. And we actually named, we got a, a whole network of Macs when it was like the old Mac, like the Mac Five Twelve, the very first Mac. And we had a network wow. of them. And when they brought them in, we named all the computers so that you know which station you were working at or or, or which computer was free. Oh, go use that one over there. So on the news side of our college newspaper newsroom, they had named with like little tags that he'd put on the, on the computers. Like there was a Woodward and a Bernstein and over in sports, one of my buddies had, had tagged one of them as Osler for Scott Osler, then of the LA times, who was, you know, obviously phenomenal, incredibly talented writer um, and columnist for the times. And the one I named was DeFord for Frank DeFord of SI who was, that was like, that was the guy. That was the guy. Like if I could ever write like him and no, by the way, I can't, but but that was, that was the goal. And so. You
2: have socks like him though. That's the question.
0: I don't have the socks. I don't have the mustache. I don't have the wardrobe. (laughs) I don't have the slick back hair. There's no part of me that can emulate Frank DeFord, but he was like, like one of my first huge, like, you know, icons in this business who I thought like that's who i'd want to be like and that and that's that's the guy who everything he wrote i would look forward to so yeah um 18 year old me 20 year old me whatever hanging out at uc davis um, in lower freeborn hall uh, you know cranking out stories on the you know uc davis wrestling team or whatever i was doing um would have had his uh, brain just exploded by everything that you just outlined of my career. I mean, and actually even now, like sometimes I look at it and and think I'm not even sure it's it's the uh, David Byrne talking heads, uh, you know, well, how did I get here? Like, I, Mm. I don't know. I don't know. It just happened.
1: Well, Frank DeFord also, um, not just a great sports writer, but chose a great place to live, which is Westport, Connecticut, which is where I grew up. And Frank DeFord lived there. I never actually got to meet him. Um, I know that he's the most distinctive looking person on the planet. So like if I'd seen him in town to be like, oh, my God, there's Frank DeFord. Never got to see him. Another person who grew up in my hometown or lives in my hometown is uh Mark Lazary who we'll get to later in this wow. uh in this podcast but Westport is full of people full of people that uh that do incredible things except for the one speaking right now. So, uh Howard, I want to say um this whole pandemic uh, you and I have been kind of in the same boat which which is we're trying to figure out the next steps and I go all the way back to our time at Mag together. Uh, I mean we were teammates at ESPN and then you uh, I split from ESPN and decided to join Howard's team over at BRMAG. And it was one of those things where Howard had like turned Bleacher Report into this like highbrow uh, premium storytelling uh, media outlet. And I want to thank you, Howard, for doing that because it was a really nice time working for BRMAG.
0: No, no, that's kind of you to say, Tom. Thanks, man. Um, look, I mean, it was, it was a kind of a leap of faith in 2013 when I left, you know, the, the New York Times to go there. And there was a lot of intrigue and and things that I, I knew I could do that, that I, that I couldn't do at the times. So there were new opportunities, video and audio and all kinds of stuff. And but I always say like because people will say like, oh, well, you know, when you went there, it was this moment and all this. Like, OK, I, I, I guess because I went from the it time, was, right? I always say It, it. was. It, it
1: was a moment. It, it was like a holy shit. The Howard it, Beck it, left The
0: New York Times to go to BR. This is not this is not false humility. I learned long ago and the great David Carr, the, the former longtime media columnist for The New York Times, I believe is the one who invented this. And I apologize if he was not. But I think David Carr invented this, that The New York Times becomes your last name. And so it's, it's the entirety of your identity. So it's you're never you're not just Howard Beck. It's now Howard Beck of the New York Times, and that's your last name. And so I always felt at the time because people like there were blog posts like Howard Beck leaving the Times to go to the Bleacher Report. Was, part of that was because Bleacher Report was still very new, and people were still trying to figure out what it was. And it didn't have the the greatest rep because there was a lot of you know clickbait and, and and other stuff going on there at the time. And it was significant that they were investing in journalism, um, but it made. The, the reason I made a headline is because I was leaving the New York Times. If I'd still been Howard Beck of the LA Daily News, I'm not sure anybody would have cared <laughs> quite as much. <laughs> no offense to the LA Daily News. Or if I had still been at the Davis Enterprise where I started my career after school at UC Davis. It was, it was a I big mean, deal.
1: It was a big deal. I'll tell you and, that one. It, uh, it was one of those things where I, I – didn't see uh, br as as a place for like magazine writing and then suddenly jonathan abrams is there and mirin fader's there and june lee's there who's now at, at just kicking ass at espn um and so many other people that I, I can't name but we were in the same room and when you talk about like senior writer at sports illustrated holy shit did we feel like senior writers in that room at br <laughs> like we were like like there are kids everywhere it felt like like the like 22 year olds and it was like, man, this is the future, um, of journalism and things are going to be, uh, building from here. And then like, um, not to say I had anything to do with them closing shop, but they, BR mag closes shop, uh, this, what, this summer, Howard? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, really? Really? Cause we, I, I felt like we had done some really great work there, um the only like award that I'd ever written, uh, gotten in this writing world is for the piece I wrote about Kyrie Irving and his, um, the feature about him going, um, vegan and like the world of vegan and nutrition and in sports and how, you know, is it a good idea to just stop eating meat as a professional athlete? And I felt really great about that piece. And I think it was one of the first ones I wrote at BR mag and it was a great team to, uh, to put things together. And, then that closes down Howard Beck of BR mag has to go find a new spot. And then I find out that I was let go at, at NBC sports. And I just had this moment, uh, Howard of like, man, this media landscape is, is pretty dark right now it is there's layoffs happening. There's uh, BR mag is just closing up shop. NBC sports, um, decides not to retain me, which I mean, it's a small ripple in the whole thing, but, this whole bubble and not going to, like, I didn't go to the bubble. I don't think you went to the bubble. Um, no. What was that like finding out that you were being let go from BR and also this pandemic was going on and you had decided not to go to the bubble. Did you feel like, man, am, am I losing my fastball or something
0: like that? Cause I certainly felt that way. It I mean, it was a, I'll just say I was in a really, it was a really weird headspace to be in. Um, you know, look, everybody has been in a strange headspace all year because our lives have just been so incredibly disrupted by the pandemic and you know, nothing has felt normal since early March. So just first adapting to doing everything from home. We work from home a lot anyway, but not no arenas to go to, no planes to get on, no anything. And then, um, you know, the, the, the NBA restart. So first you have no games and everything. We're just in this weird space for all these months when there's no NBA. And then they re, then they do the restart. And I knew I wasn't going to be going to the bubble either as the first tier or second tier for various reasons that we don't need to get into. It's boring, but I knew I wasn't going. And so it's the first finals I've missed since 2006. Mm. Um, I'd covered part or all of every finals starting in 2007 when I was still at the times and all the way through all my BR years. And so First postseason that I hadn't covered any piece of since I started covering the NBA period in 1997. So it was the first time I hadn't been in a postseason since 1996, which was before I started covering the NBA. So it was, it was just uh, you start thinking about these things, and like my this is strange. I like I'm I'm not I'm not doing the stuff that I would normally be doing. Even if I were doing it, it's not the right time of year. Everything is just off. But everything's off for everybody right now. Um, so there was all that in the midst of all of that. There were some warning signs along the way that, because uh, my contract was expiring um, this fall anyway, and uh, there were some warning signs. We don't need to get into the the gritty details, uh, but there were some warning signs that maybe things weren't going the right direction. But there were no indications until the day they actually did it that they were going to fold. Br mag. Mm. So that was a tough moment, but. I'd already been sending feelers out by that point to other places because I had a sense that that things were maybe going a certain way. The tide was yeah. yeah, if if not for the whole organization, then at a minimum, potentially for me. And I don't mean just about whether they wanted to bring me back, but also about whether I wanted to be back. And as you know, Tom, when you left, they didn't replace you. When June Lee left, they didn't replace June. When some editors left, they didn't replace them. The, Br Mag had been kind of withering the last couple of years anyway. It was at one time when it first was created, and I give them huge, huge credit as an organization for creating in the first place. They made a serious investment. They said this matters, and we're going to build out a staff and have editors and writers, and we're going to have meetings and a budget. And it's going to be its own little sub-operation Give them huge credit for doing that because it's hard to do and not that many places have done it, and especially in new media.
1: Shout out to Ben Osborne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. shout out to Ben Osborne and many others. But it's it's easy to cut checks to freelancers and publish their work. Anybody can do that. Anybody with a website can send out a paycheck for a a, a freelance fee. Here, write this story for us. Here's a check. But it's not benefits. It's not full time, and it's not a full-fledged commitment to journalism. BR made that commitment. Starting in 2013, when they hired me, Ethan Skolnick, Kevin Ding, uh, Rick Bucher, Mike Freeman on the NFL. So, first it was more of a, a beat writing kind of approach. And then that kind of came undone, or they undid it and they created BR Mag. And then we had that. And it was a serious commitment. So, I do give them credit for that. But starting within the last couple of years, you could see when people were leaving and weren't being replaced. To me, that indicates that the commitment had waned. And I'm not criticizing, I'm not complaining, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed to see that because I I I as a as a journalist who has spent my entire career doing this, um I I I was very encouraged whenever I've seen any any place that decided to make that kind of commitment. But as 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 I'm moving through the months of this year, as you're you're asking about like you know how are you feeling about us, well, I, like there were signs that 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 commitment had been uh, waning anyway, and so I I knew I I needed to be looking around.
1: I mean, how many times have you like spent an MBA? When's the last time that you weren't in
0: arenas for games, like in an NBA season? This is by far the longest stretch of my. Uh, Career that I have not been in an NBA arena. I mean, it's been since it's been since. Mar- I don't even know the last game I was at. I'd have to go look it up. But it was you know it's probably like a, a home Nets or Knicks game, right? Because I I, I pop into a lot of those because they're and I live here.
2: Um, I was, it was probably a Knicks game because the last game I went to was March 11th, Lakers Nets in 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 Staples.
0: Uh, I was yeah. definitely at that one. Unless uh, I, that was in unless that overlapped with Sloan. Oh, that was L.A. You're right. Yeah, that was L.A. Yeah, yeah.
2: So the you might have been the last game you might have gone to might have been uh, Jazz Celtics in Boston. At first I didn't. Long.
0: No, but I didn't go. I didn't uh, go, and I'm glad I didn't because uh,
2: super spreader th- event.
0: <laughs> Ru- Ru- Rudy Gobert was there that night. Okay. Oh man,
2: Beck, Have so, you heard? You heard my the my last two weeks of NBA coverage uh, before COVID shut everything down. I went to Nuggets Clippers where uh, the Nuggets had some people on staff who tested positive. Then I went to jazz Celtics, uh, which both teams had people who test positive, including I went to go say what's up with some of my guys at the jazz. And we. I remember, I'll never forget this standing on the court right there by the, um by the home tunnel, uh, because you know, how the jazz are weird. They would shoot the wrong way or whatever. And they're warming up on that side of the court. And, um, I was saying what's up to my guys and Rudy came out and we made a big deal about oh elbows you gotta nobody nobody dap up we do elbows only and then he sat and he shot the shit and then I went to the other side of the court um, where Donovan Mitchell was was warming up and I said what's up to him I dapped him up and I just sat oh, there no. while he was shooting corner threes in front of me right so I leave Jazz Celtics I fly to LA I go to Lakers Clippers <laughs> and I'm all of in the, like, Lakers, whatever. And then I go to Lakers-Nets. And I went to uh, the Nets post game, which was in this small room because they didn't want to do uh, media availability in the locker rooms anymore. So they started so, – so the NBA's solution was like, let's make this small room available. Oh, my where, God, yeah. Yeah, because cause the Lakers are using the, the main um, the main press room or not press room, their main uh, press conference room for their post-game availability. So the next one was that little, I don't know if you guys know, down in Staples, right across from the visitor's locker room. I don't know if that's like where, like halftime acts warm up, or sometimes <laughs> staffs that have a female coach, they'll be in there. Like, it's a small-ass room that they just make you put some chairs in there. And I sat there for the whole thing. And then I did a podcast with someone the next day it turned out they tested positive and I flew. Off. And so that was my last two weeks of like active NBA coverage. Well,
1: it was- I mean, they, did you see that the Sloan conference, um, there was a Mary, there was like a, um, there was a Marriott convention, like a few, few days earlier that had some sort of like bio conference there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did you see yeah. the
2: headline that just came out with 300,000 people Yes, like were infected but they connected connected to, that. to yeah.
1: that super spreader event in Boston either the same weekend or like a few days prior to Sloan where you had a gathering of people all over the world some of the richest um with the the most impressive resumes and diplomas you can imagine and we're all convening at the Sloan conference in this in the in the convention center and thinking yeah. Is this is this a good idea that we're doing this? And like that was Friday and Saturday of the Sloan Conference on March whatever fifth or sixth. And there mm-hmm. was um there was a dinner. I remember I went out to dinner, and it was like Nate Silver, Henry Abbott, um the uh there was just Mina Kimes. There was like a bunch. There's like fifteen of us, and we were all like just eating from the same like sharing this big old meal. And it was it, I think in the um, back of our heads it was like what are go, we doing?
2: Did you go? Did you go to the unofficial kickoff event that Mike Zarin always holds at a location that we will not say by name because I don't want a bunch of nerds showing up, <laughs> listening to this podcast, like, next year, we'll be there. But anyways, it well, is sadly, a location. It doesn't.
1: it doesn't exist anymore.
2: Oh, yeah, that establishment sadly. doesn't exist? The no.
1: yeah.
2: Right, yeah. All right. Okay. No, fuck it. It was the That <laughs> The, the force had this upstairs. And you know, if you've ever been to Sloan, this event, is it's a great networking event because everybody's there everybody is there. So it is super duper duper packed in there. I mean it was – look, I mean we definitely did our fair share of flirting with danger. Yes, I don't know if either of you guys have been infected but I, I haven't. And I'm like I'm still kind of in shock that I went through all of this, didn't get infected and also don't have antibodies. I've tested twice and don't have any antibodies. I'm just lucky I guess, knock on wood.
0: Same. And 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 during the Sloan conference that weekend, actually, some of us were saying, like, it was always kind of that like nervous kind of should we even be here? Like places are like other like south by southwest, I think had just been canceled and things were but we were still all in that weird mental space, I think, as a as a as a country where it was like, are we overreacting, underreacting, properly reacting? Um, I like I wasn't sure, and we were all like they put you know, installed Purell at like every five feet right. at the Sloan <laughs> Conference in the Convention Center, and elbow so we're all we elbow bumps, bumps to Purell, but we, so we were laughing about we're it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, yeah. we're with we're talking within two feet of each other because at that time there was no such thing as social distancing. That phrase hadn't even entered the lexicon yet.
2: So and masks weren't a thing either.
1: No, I, I no. taped I taped a Haber Show pod with Shane Battier. And Sue Bird in a closet. I shit you not. It was in a closet. <laughs> the same airspace, like airborne, whatever. It's as bad of a COVID scenario as you can imagine. And we were doing it. And it's so funny to think, like, not funny, but it's it's so crazy to think of how 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 little we knew then. And you had some of the brightest individuals in the world all coming together and still. We decided to do the one thing you should not be doing, which is just like convening in close quarters without masks on indoors. We had no idea. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this.
2: On uh, my podcast, Black Opinions Matter, we had uh, Bobby Jones. You guys remember Bobby Jones, University of Washington –
1: Mm-hmm. uh played
2: for eight million nba teams i think he has a record for most teams play for him in a single season uh because he just kept getting traded and cut and picked up in 10 days and uh, just it's a crazy season but bobby's pl- been playing in italy last few years we had bobby on in february talking about what was happening in italy and he predicted everything he's like in about three to four weeks, it's going to happen to you guys. You're going to shut everything down. No one's going to be allowed to go outside. And we're like, Bobby, come on. Like, that's never going to happen. It was like it was, a, it was like crazy listening to these stories of him describing what life was like in Italy in February where, you know, obviously the, the death toll was ridiculous and, and, you know, you couldn't leave the house without papers showing that you were an essential worker or something like that. And then literally within a month – It'll happen to us. I mean, it, it was, it, it's, I've, I, it's kind of weird to me because sometimes, I, like we did a lot of podcasts, obviously during the pandemic, we had a lot of guests and sometimes I forget, but no, Bobby was before. Bobby was before because he was predicting what was going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Whereas all the other people we talked to were kind of in the middle of it. how are you staying, you know, active or whatever. Bobby was one of the guys that before it happened, and so in a weird way, we could say we didn't know any better, but like we kind of knew better, man. We just didn't want to. We didn't, you know. I want to take here. it as
1: serious. I'll one up you here. I mean, Sue Bird, the podcast we recorded indoors without masks on in basically a closet, we were talking about Seattle, because Sue Bird, like basically her ties to Seattle, where it was like she was talking about how crazy it was in Seattle at that time with COVID, because that was one of the first outbreaks. So here we are talking about the COVID pandemic that's erupting in different parts of the country in the close quarters. And we just didn't know how airborne, um, the fact that it was more airborne than than touch. it was It was a crazy, crazy time. And then after that, the day after on Sunday was the Thunder Celtics game where Chris Paul after the game didn't take media availability in the locker room and took media availability in the hallway outside of the visitor's locker room in OKC because that seemed to be safer. But imagine 40 reporters and cameramen and just crowding around Chris Paul in close quarters in a hallway as if that's any better. Right. We just had no idea like the the pathology of this disease that it was going to turn out this way. And it was it was crazy, and that was the last game I went to was Sunday, March whatever eighth it was. Um, Celtics, Thunder, um, and then of course the Thunder had that had that thing happen to them on on the Wednesday night, the shutdown. So crazy, um, and I want to hit this because it was one of the best things I've read in a long time. Howard Beck did a cameo at uh, at his old at his old spot, the New York Times. Um, he wrote a wonderful piece uh, called "Saying Goodbye to the Trips of a Lifetime." Um, Howard, how did that come together? And th- first of all, thank you for writing it. It was really touching, and it made me think a lot about my own parents and and those trips that we make in the NBA world.
0: Yeah. No. Thanks, Tom. Um- Shout out and huge gratitude to uh, our buddy Mark Stein um, over at the New York Times, who is obviously a national NBA writer for them and has a newsletter that you can subscribe to. And I encourage all your listeners to subscribe if they haven't to uh, to Stein's newsletter. And it's you know his his newsletter is a weekly thing, and it is often a little bit more personal. And sometimes sometimes it's strictly basketball. Sometimes it is a little personal. Sometimes it's a mix, but it's it's um, it's looser it's not as, as, as buttoned down as, as, as the typical New York times stuff. Um, and so Stein has to take a week off occasionally. And he had hit me up a couple of times over the last year or so saying, could you do a guest column? And I, you know, that was, I wasn't sure, um, about timing or about, you know, if, you know, would, would BR be okay with it and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so the timing was perfect this time because I was between jobs. So it was, the timing was right in that regard. And when he reached out, this was what was on my mind. Like, if I'm going to write a one, a singular piece for the New York times, the place I worked for nine years have been gone for seven. I'm not going to just write like some season preview, right. Or like, you know, some hot take on, you know, why the the jazz or the dark horse for the championship or something like that. I wanted to, I wanted to do something meaningful with, with that opportunity. Who knows if I'll ever write in the New York times again. Um, but also this, this story about my dad, um, I first talked about this. I I don't, I don't get very personal, very often in in public and and certainly not in my writing or, or even on the podcast, but I had Steve Kerr on my podcast in September of 2019. Last year, it had been six weeks since, uh, since my dad died. It was still very raw and I was still just kind of just, you know, getting my, my head around it and just working through the, the emotions and the loss and everything. Um, and at the end of this podcast with with Steve Kerr, I said, listen, before I let you go, I hope this doesn't get awkward, but I just wanted to, to, to say this to you. Um, thank you so much for the Warriors being great for the last five years, because because of you guys being in the finals every year, I got five free trips to see my parents who live in Northern California. And um, every June. It meant I would usually sneak away between games one and two, right? We got the big gap between one and two over the weekend. So that's when I, and one of those days would often be a no media access day. So I could just, I could drive up to where they are a couple hours outside the Bay Area and go see them. And last, uh, last year, um, because Toronto had home court, I ended up just flying straight from Toronto to Sacramento. They're in that region. And I, and I did it that way. So I I snuck in between games two and three. And, um, and so I thanked Steve Kerr just saying, thank you for, (laughs) those opportunities, like the, this, this, this beat, it takes you away from family and friends a lot of time and takes you out of your, your, your home comforts and everything, but it sends you all over the country. And for me, that meant I got to see a lot of people over the last couple of decades that I wouldn't have seen otherwise friends who had moved to various parts of the country, family who I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And so my two weeks after I saw my dad in in June of 2019, he had a a bad fall at home. He had a lot of physical issues. And so the fall wouldn't, wasn't surprising, but this was a really bad fall and he broke two bones in his neck. And everything from that point on was, well, he's, he's going to rehab, he's going to, you know, the, the, you know, he was obviously in, in the hospital and they were, you know, he'd been immobilized and all this, but there was no sign of, 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 of deeper trouble. So when I got a call one night that he had been taken from this, um, this uh, like skilled nursing facility to the hospital unconscious, um, it was, it was a shock. And the next day when they're telling us he's got some organ failures and this is, this is, this is it. And I had, you know, like within three hours, I was, I was, you know, a JFK on Indian jumping on a plane to, to go back. So literally the last time I got to see my dad, um, in, you know, and I, mean, I saw him at, I was, I was by his hospital bed when he died. And so I was there for the last couple of days, but he was, he was unconscious the entire time. So the last meaningful time I had with him, was between games two and three of the 2019 NBA finals when I um, went to go spend the evening with my parents and watched Jeopardy with my dad and um, had a nice evening, not realizing that that was, <clears throat> that that was it. So I always had that in my head. I've, i ever since, I thought this is, I just, I wanted to write about it at some point. I wasn't sure where or how or, or w- what form it would take. I just knew that I had this thought about how the Warriors got me home and how this this beat, as, as exhausting as the travel can be and everything else, it it has is me these amazing opportunities on, on, on in my on a personal level to see people and um, and it, it got me home at a time I, I, I wouldn't have been there otherwise, and and um, I just I just it's incredible sometimes you know the, the universe just kind of looks out for you um the basketball gods are looking out for me so um, I don't I I. The, And the other thing before I I, I stop rambling, um, my dad loved newspapers, grew up in in New York, you know, born in the Bronx, loved the New York Times, was really proud of the the fact that I got that job there. And so like this really was not just the perfect place to write this, but maybe the only place to write this. It would have never, it wouldn't have made sense in, in other places. It absolutely, like this was... It was the exact right time between jobs. Um, it was the exact right newspaper or, or publication period for it to appear in. Um, the copy of the, the physical copy of it, because they published it too in the paper, which I'm so, so, so grateful for, um, is, is sitting two feet to my left as I speak. Um, photo of me and my dad um, with that headline. And just it's 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 just really nice. It's the greatest thing.
1: It's it's so great to think about the the little periphery trips that you make in the NBA schedule that you don't really think of at the time, but now in retrospect, because of COVID, um, and because of just the life's frailties that we should really take those things for granted. It made me reading, it made me think of the the Boston live show. I mean, how the, the NBA had done a, I think it was Sloan weekend, uh, that was paired to like a, a Celtics game. Um, and, Count the dings, we decided to do a show, a live show. 2018
2: or 2017?
1: (sighs) That must have been 2018. Yeah, because my mom was in a wheelchair at that point. So it was 2018 and it was such a special night because my mom got to see me perform or see me on stage doing a live show and seeing what, um, what my career, where it had taken me. And all the people in the community, I mean, Brent Barry was there in the back, I remember. Yeah. Um, Henry Abbott, we did a set with Henry Abbott on the stage who we worked with at ESPN. And it was just a really special night. And my mom was able to attend because she lives in Connecticut and she drove up and she was in a power wheelchair at the time. And so she had gotten pretty far along in her ALS uh, battle. And it was so special to have that. And after reading your piece, Howard, that's exactly where my mind went to is like these, these little events, these side events that we were able to share with family or friends because of the NBA schedule and the calendar and the travel. Um, and so it made me think so much about my relationship with my parents and and the things that we just aren't able to do. I, this week we canceled Christmas with my family, uh, because we just can't, we c- canceled a family gathering, uh, Christmas simply because we can't, we can't go see grandma and granddad, you know, our grandkids, our, my kids, their grandkids. And it, I don't know when the next time is that we're going to all gather again, but man, it hit so many emotions. So thank you for, for writing that, um, and sharing that story. And I mean, I'm I'm sure you have different things that you've experienced on the road in the NBA, besides what we do in South beach in Miami. Um, (laughs) that, that is kind of a similar thing that, um, these travels in the NBA take you to different places and have different moments that you, you, you wouldn't have had otherwise.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's a little different because my family, you know, I guess you could call my, my father a casual fan, but I mean, that's my father's the type of person who gets surprised to see Steve Kurtz coaching. When did he stop playing? Like, he's not really, you know, day to day like that. And, and you know, uh, same thing with my mother, you know, she'll, she'll recognize the names of people that I've talked about working with. That's, and that's, that's, that's why she'll know them. Um, so for me,
1: you know, it's more about. Seeing Jay Cole at the Charlotte all-star game. Oh, no, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's just, <laughs> you
2: know no, I mean, for, for me, it's, it's more about what I think about when I was growing up and, you know, I, you started this podcast asking Howard, yo, if you went to got Doc Brown, got in the DeLorean, took you back there there to, uh, when you were editor in chief of the the Aggie, and you told yourself what's going to happen. You know, he's, Howard said your fucking mind would be blown. And and I think about the same thing. You know, my my entire life had been the two NBA games. They were both in New Jersey because that's the only way you could go to an NBA game because the Knicks games, was, I mean, that's just out of the question. Like, Knicks uh, game, what are you, a millionaire? Um, you know, and everything was sold out and everything. And so you go watch the Nets. And it was like the Nets, I watched Nets, Knicks. and and nets rockets. I think that this was the year I think after they won their second championship. So, um, and then I went to the NBA draft, the 96 draft. Um, I was there and I was like, it's one of the funniest things. Like there's a million stories from that night. They're just ridiculous. But one of them is I bumped into a guy in the hall in the concourse and everyone's asking for an autograph. So I said, you know, oh, let me get your autograph. And then I looked at it and see who the guy was. And I, I said, oh, this guy's never going to play in the league. And I gave it to some kid. Like, here, you can have this. It was Malik Rose. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, like, like, less than 10 years later, I'm working for the Knicks, and we trade for Malik Rose. Yeah. And so I, I got to know Malik, like, from there. And then, like, kept, kind of kept track with him throughout our careers. And so then when Malik was doing, uh, I believe he was doing – Color TV for Philadelphia. Yep. Yeah. I remember. Mm-hmm. I sat down with him, and he was like, "Yo, I want to do this front office thing," and he just kind of picked my brain about stuff. And there's a part of me that's just like, I remember giving away your autograph <laughs> in 1996, <laughs> and now you're sitting here asking me for career advice. Um, it, it's just it, there's moments like that for me, and I know it's not quite as heartfelt as what you guys are going. Um, and I. To be honest with you, I hope, even though I know it's you know every every everything everybody goes through this at some point, but I kind of hope I don't have to. But um, for me, it's it's stuff like that. It's it's more of these little mundane moments where I stop and I think to myself, what what the hell is going on here? Like why 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 is Shaq harassing me? Again, like I think about like telling myself in high school, yo, Shaq is going to put you in a headlock at at random points. And you're like, what? What do you mean? You know, so that's when I think about basketball. I think about kind of how far it's taken me in terms of things I've experienced and things I've seen. And then obviously, you know, this is everything I have. I bought a house off of this and I, you know, bought a car and I – Raise kids, and I, you know, put, you know, like all of this, all the money comes from basketball. I don't, I never had a job, a real job, that paid for anything. You know, I had part-time jobs and stuff like that. But in terms of your your 401k and your, uh, and you know, your 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 medical and your dental insurance and all that, basketball gave me all that. And, and so I always think about Charles Barkley talking about he's never worked a day in his life. And I'm not Charles Barker, so I have worked many days in my life, but it still is. It beats. It beats what? It beats bricklaying, right? Or, or you know, making widgets or, or, or whatever it is.
1: Well, you whatever you, advice you gave to Malik, it really did well, I guess. Uh, that, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't great. I mean, it was because <laughs> now he's in the league office. He's
2: yeah, no. I mean, he, one, it, of he's, one of the,
1: one of the most high powered former NBA players or high powered executives anywhere. Um, yeah
2: in the league yeah i mean i'm but like it's easy it's like Malik you played in the league and you're really smart like at that point it's kind of like it's on Malik if it doesn't work out <laughs> right like you, you, like you most there's i mean we all know this there there's some smart people who don't have a whole lot of social graces out there there are people who are the life of the party uh uh and, and know like every all the best restaurants but aren't smart, aren't very well-versed or well-knowledged in the things that they should be. Uh, In the rare instances, there are people who are awful at both. Some of those people become general manager of the Phoenix Suns at one point in their career (laughs) and get called a basketball genius, right? And, And then you have people like Malik who are just like, he's the home run, yeah. You got it all. He's a down-to-earth guy, but yeah, he played in the league and he didn't he didn't have cups of coffee. The dude played on championship teams and and was, you know, made a lot of money and was a, was a, a a very good rotation player for a long time and and you know, educated and very intelligent and worldly and and and, and it's just like, yeah, well, those are the people that are supposed to rise to the top.
1: When when you write about analytics and stuff, you kind of get pigeonholed as like this nerd who can't uh, get out of their mother's basement, right? Um, and so, a lot of times when I go to when I go to NBA games and I'm talking with certain people, I have this thing in the back of my head that says, "Oh, they think that I'm just this uh, protractor toting, calculator wearing uh, nerd. They're never going to come over and talk to me." And Malik, one time before a game, he like sought me out on the court before a game and like approached me and asked me about an article I'd written and like asked me about the research and the uh, thinking that went behind the story. And he had a genuine like curiosity about analytics and like the, the way that I approached that story. And I remember thinking to myself, like this is, I never get this. I very rarely get a former NBA player who sees analytics as like their friend or sees that as an opportunity. And I knew right then and there, like, man, this, this guy's different. Uh, Malik, Malik is kind of part of this school of thinking where it's like, I want to, I want to have as much information as possible. I've always felt that way about Malik. So, um, that's pretty cool. And those moments. It's like
2: your guy, Shane, it's like your guy, Shane, like Shane's the same thing. It's like, wait, hold on. You're telling me a dude who was uh, a Duke educated and played, you know, x teen years in the league and won championships and, you know, it was a rotation, but and all that. Like, oh, you tell me he'd be good at this front office shit. Yeah, no shit, right? Like, yeah, they are guy and there, you know, I think about the guys who are in the league now who are trying to make that. League. So, like, Garrett Temple, I know, has aspirations of being a front office guy, and I think Garrett Temple is going to be really good at it whenever he gets started. Obviously, Sean Livingston, uh, just getting started this year, his first year as a front office guy for Golden State. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, you, you come across people, Sean Marks, Sean Marks is a guy who, who played for us in Phoenix. You come across people and you just know, Oh, he gets it. Cause there are guys again, like I'm just not the anti-player drum that I'm banging here, but it's like, there are guys who think I, I, what I lived it. What more do I need to know? Like mm-hmm. it's so much more, man. It's, it's so much work. Cause there's so much more involved than just, being a player or knowing, oh, he can play, right? And the people who respect it often turn into the most successful ones. And the people who don't are the ones that struggle.
1: Speaking of smart executives and, and good organizations, not the Knicks of your, um, I do want to talk real quick about Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks, Uh the news yesterday that Giannis is signing the five-year, $228 million Supermax. Um, and Howard, you're you're not a newsbreaker anymore. I, do, I don't remember when the last time you were like a newsbreaker and why, why you switched. I, I'm guessing you switched because of your sanity?
0: <laughs> um there's a whole other discussion to be had there that would take hours that, that prob- <laughs> and probably shouldn't be ta- shouldn't be discussed on a publicly available podcast anyway. But no, I'm I, um, I, I am not in that lane. Um, but in, you've in written a lot correcting.
1: about the Milwaukee Bucks um, yes. and the organization and the news that came out uh, yesterday that he is signing it might not have come as a huge surprise. But what did you take away from that news? Because uh, I saw Amin's take on, on the jump and I thought it was a great one. Um, but what was your, what was your feeling from, if you could write a Sports Illustrated piece that would have run yesterday, what
0: was your take? Basically that I, 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 i I'm admittedly surprised on some level because I thought there was a strong case to be made, not saying he should have done this. There's a strong case to be made that he should have waited. Um, there's no, there's very little reason for anybody to lock in early in today's NBA because you're going to be uh, wealthy beyond your wildest dreams regardless. Kevin Durant just showed you can tear your Achilles and still get a max level deal. So there was no risk for Giannis, who's already you know banked $100 million or so. Anyway, he could have left all of his options open. So what it told me was – and I'm, I'm going to say it, it, it. It's not about the money. It's not about the money because the money would have been there anyway. Not that it's not right. staggering and not that it's not in, in, in a really nice thing to have. But – To me, that signature meant one thing, an incredible show of faith, belief, and trust in Bucks ownership and the Bucks front office. He's saying, I don't need to wait till next summer or see if we make the finals or see if we win a championship to decide whether or not I think this is where my career is best. I believe in what you guys are doing. I believe in what you've already done to date. That's what that signature meant, because if he had any doubts about their direction, He could have either gone on a a shorter contract or just waited until next offseason and seen what Miami had to tell him or the Toronto Raptors or Dallas or whoever else. He could have explored all those options and still possibly gone back to Milwaukee. But he took all of his options off the table because the Bucs have done enough to convince him that this is where you're best off. And it also told me that all the things that we've been hearing the last few years, sometimes on the record, sometimes off the record, people saying, Giannis is different. Giannis doesn't want to go flee somewhere else to form a super team. Giannis doesn't care about being in New York or LA or a big market. Giannis has an intense loyalty streak. All these things that that we all said, okay, that that, that sounds right. And that sounds like it fits what we know about him, but we're all very cynical for usually good reason. And we hear those things with other players sometimes, and they don't turn out to be the case consistently. And so I believed all that at the time I was hearing it, but until a guy actually does that, you don't know for sure that certified that all those things that we were being told were actually true. When I
1: when I when I looked at it, I said, "Why now?" Howard, like yeah. the the I'm glad you brought up the timing of it because he could have done this like a week ago. He could have done this as soon as he landed in Milwaukee from Greece, but he didn't, right? So what happened between like media day, quote unquote media day where it's all over Zoom What happened between the two games against Luka, um, where they start out 0-2, and I kind of start to think, do you think that seeing what James Harden was going through and all of the gossip and all of the coverage about where he's going to go or all this and then having to answer reporter questions after the losses to Dallas, even if it's preseason, I almost feel like, The media cycle that he saw that was just ravaging uh, James Harden and the Nets and just engulfing those those organizations, I almost feel like seeing that and imagining what this season was going to be like. Just having to answer those questions every single game and have every little moment that you have in these games, every little smirk, every little flex, every little dunk, every little turnover, every little conversation you're having on the court, you're having to lift your jersey up over your mouth, a thing that they do. All of that was <laughs> going to be scrutinized to like a million um, times X, right? So I feel like
2: maybe— do you think, Hold on. Do you think you could you could read Giannis' lips if, if he didn't cover his I don't know. I think some people, like, it's just too hard to figure out based,
1: based on the way he talks. Well, I, I think uh, because I'm Greek, I can do it. Um, I think that's basically it. But <laughs> the, the, the thing is he went through this media cycle for like a week and then just said, you know what? I want to stay here long term. And I wonder if that had— some part, not all of it, but some part is seeing this like in fuego that was about to happen throughout the entire season and all the stress that would come from that. And he just made a vote for peace, just sanity. Like I, I wonder about that. I mean,
2: he just said peace, literally, <laughs> chunked up the deuces <laughs> from all of this this uh, media circus. No, it's it's a good question because what took you this. Uh, It's almost like if it took you this long, one would think he would sign like on the 21st, right? Like right before the deadline and take it all the way up to the end to kind of fully evaluate all the options available. Or, or, you know, would have signed it a lot earlier, like as soon as it was available for him to sign. The the fact it took this long, I, I hope someone is close enough with him to one day get that story about what what was the thought process behind waiting this long, but not all the way to the end. Uh, but kind of like what I said on the jump, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What matters is it's a triumph for well-run organizations, right? Milwaukee is a team that's, over the last three years, has done everything it can to run their organization the right way, from an ownership level to management to coaching. That doesn't mean they're perfect, that doesn't mean they're without flaws. Everyone's got mistakes. I, I said that yesterday on the jump, and I had people, like, tweeting me pictures of Jabari Parker being the number two overall pick. Like, look, it happens. Nobody's perfect. People fuck up. I, guess what? I'll take the front office that picked Giannis 13th and Jabari Parker 2nd. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll live with that. Like, that, that's that's fine with me. I'm not going to be upset about that. But, but the reality is... Um, when you run your team well, you give yourself a chance to sell yourself to your, your player that you were gifted via the draft. Um, Every team that has a star player that they acquire via the draft and even acquire by any means. I mean, you have maximum about seven, eight years to show that you know what you're doing. And then after that, it's like, well, you know, everything else is gravy after that. So for Giannis to, um, to commit was more for me, more than small market, big market was more about these guys know what they're doing. So they're going to take care of my prime years. They're not going to Kevin Garnett me in Minnesota. They're not going to Anthony Davis me in new Orleans. They're not going to, um, uh, you know, even LeBron James, who was on back to back 60 win teams in Cleveland before he left for Miami we know that that team was not well run particularly from an ownership level and so all these players are looking at if if my legacy is going to be judged by the number of rings that i win let me be in a situation where they're doing everything they can to help me with that and not dicking around because of x y or z yeah
1: it seems like Whatever happened in the past week, and Kevin Arnovitz and Brian Winhurst wrote a great piece uh, for ESPN uh, detailing some of the things that the Milwaukee Bucks had tried to do or broach with Giannis and Adacumpo, Um, one of which was, yeah, he Bogey was talking directly with Giannis. I didn't really realize that Bogey and Giannis had a relationship from a few years ago. There was a game in which they played against each other in international competition where Bogey just like lit them up. And after that, apparently Giannis was like, that's a dude I want on my team. And, like, you can look at some of the things, like the trade for Drew Holiday, obviously an amazing two-way player for them. Um, It gave up a lot. But if it means in the end that it gets you Giannis and decumpo on a super max deal for a long term, like, you live with that. You live with all the picks going to New Orleans. uh, By the
2: way, it's it's not... Totally dissimilar from what Sam Presti did. You trade for Paul George, you trade for Carmelo Anthony. Everyone says, it doesn't fit. It doesn't matter if it fits. What matters is that dude signs a contract, and Russ signed an extension a few weeks afterwards. That's, where, that's why he did it. Now, if it works, oh, that's gravy. But the reality is, how do we get this guy, this franchise-level player, under contract for the next X amount of years? And you know, even though they ended up trading him soon thereafter, that's irrelevant. All that matters is that y- y- you locked in the franchise level talent at whatever prices of the day were.
1: Right. And I I think about them signing to NASIS where it was like, um, you have, you have other superstars with brothers. What is the best, what is the best you can come up with Howard or, I mean, brother of star player, brother of NBA player as almost like a, a favor to like, not a
0: favor. Oh, oh this, this one's obvious. This is easy. Chris? Me knows, me knows exactly where I'm. Chris Smith. J.R. <laughs> J- Smith's brother, Chris Smith. Yeah.
2: I had people, bad people telling me, but I was playing pickup with that guy that day and torturing him. <laughs> I he in the NBA? I said, hey, man.
0: <laughs> and by the way, it's even more spectacular because it's not like J.R. Smith was like some MVP candidate or multiple time All Star. He's a nice player. J.R. Smith, good player, contributed to a championship team in Cleveland. Like, But he was with the Knicks. As you know, but J.R. Smith was represented by CAA, which was also Carmelo Anthony and many other important people in that building at the time.
2: Uh, Howard, wasn't that, those are crazy times when CAA ran the Knicks, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good thing they straightened that all out. <laughs>
1: oh, there's a train rolling by my uh, my house right now. I wonder what that's all about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Wait, so I had this thought on Twitter, and it's related to this. What is – like if you're the GM, I mean, of a team when Bronny James is is in the draft, would you draft Bronny James no matter how good he is, number one overall, if it meant that you would get LeBron James?
2: If, if it was guaranteed I was getting LeBron James, or am I doing the Shabazz Napier because LeBron really likes him, and then LeBron says, bye,
1: guys, and you're like – Come on, you really think you, you really think LeBron wouldn't try to force his way to the team that his son was drafted by?
2: Man, I don't know how that guy operates, man. He 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 does tend to kind of like like keep everybody guessing and zig when everyone thinks he's going to zag. So I don't know, like if you told me it was guaranteed in the bag, if you draft Bronny, you get LeBron, and there wasn't another talent on the board that I thought was elite like that like for instance if this was the Luka Doncic draft and Bronny just happened to be a, of age no oh. I would not have taken Bronny one overall I'm taking wow. Luka but if it was like but if it was this draft with like Wiseman and Edwards and those guys oh yeah yeah, <laughs> bring bring me the king I'll I'll draft this
0: prince yeah you gotta think about the next 5 to 10 years not just one year and LeBron's gonna be what 40 41 yeah he's gonna be up there um, so unless unless you think he's playing till he's fifty, <laughs> you probably better go with the the uh, the Luca uh, equivalent that that Amin was referring to.
1: Is it Im- Emani Bates? Is it Im- Imani? Imani Imani Imani, Bates. Imani yeah. Bates? Like a player like that, where it's like, oh, I mean, do I pass up the chance to have LeBron in his like age thirty nine forty season, or do I go with that guy? That'd be tough, but it, it reminds me of just like the Shabazz Napier thing of like doing doing the favor for the incoming star or the 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 incumbent star on your team. Uh and then just the risk that comes with that. And and the Lakers sign Giannis's brother, the the Bucks sign Giannis's brother. And I mean, we could talk for hours about why they do that, um, other than just like it'd be cool to have your brother around. I almost think like the fact that there is no max contract, or the fact that there is a max contract, me- opens the door for these little side deals, doesn't it? Like if if the Milwaukee Bucks could offer Mil- um, Giannis the most money of anybody, um, they wouldn't really have like he wouldn't have that much power, would he? Like I- no, I, I, this goes back to man.
2: Well, let's go back into the means hits right. Abolish the max contract. And the funniest thing is the Players Association are probably like, yeah, and the owners who say no, and the reality is it's the opposite. The owners are the ones who should have no max contracts, and the players are the ones who should fight against it because what the max contract does, because you have already agreed to pay 50 to 51%, whatever it is, of basketball-related income to players, that means that money's got to get spent. So by having max contracts, you are forcing them to redistribute Value to players who probably aren't worth it. Meaning yes. because LeBron can't make 80 million dollars a year, now uh you know, as a result, Danny Green got to make 13 or whatever it is that he made before he got uh traded. And whatever Kuzma's so,
1: extension is gonna be, right?
2: Whatever yeah. Kuzma's extension, like these are all artificially higher because LeBron and Anthony Davis are artificially lower. Also, if you get to a point where you can play a pay a player whatever. It makes it a lot harder to have multiple of those players on your team. If I pay Giannis what he's worth on the open market, seventy million or whatever, sixty million, whatever the value is, it makes it really hard for me to go out and say, okay, Chris Middleton, I'll give you, you know, twenty nine, thirty million. You can't because you'll have ninety million tied up in two people, and then you've got, uh, you know, basically, uh, what's that? Uh, Another uh, nineteen million the remaining 13 guys on the roster that doesn't work right so what ends up what would end up happening is every team would have one star that they pay a lot of money and then you'd have maybe a couple of mid-level guys and everyone else would be making minimum or you know or fairly affordable deals which again from an ownership standpoint is great i want to be paying all my money to my most productive employees uh you know who are the stars of course um, and everyone else is replaceable, imminently replaceable, interchangeable from a player's standpoint. If I'm not a star, it, it creates this really huge chasm of haves and have nots. And, and I think it would be the worst thing to happen to players overall, obviously be the best thing for LeBron and Steph Curry, and Damian Lillard, but Derrick Jones juniors and Brad Wanamakers and, uh, or, or, or Kelly Oubre's and, uh, Oh, you know, Duncan Robinson, when he eventually is eligible to get paid, like those guys are going to get hurt in the process because they're not going to be able to make the kind of exorbitant money that replaceable role players have been making over the last, you know, 15, 20 years.
1: Which reminds me, what would Glenn Taylor offer Andrew Wiggins if there was no cap?
0: Oh, well, and that's the thing, right? So, um, so much of the CBA is is rules to protect the teams against them from themselves. And, and the, the max is, is somewhat that, although quick history lesson here, when the max came into being during the 98, 99 lockout, it was the union as much as the league that had incentive to do it because at that time there was a stratification of the classes where there was a lot of guys superstars making a ton of money and there was no middle class and they wanted some assurances that there would be a middle class so that's when the mid-level exception comes into being and i think the biannual was invented then too but they also knew that if they put a max on the stars that yes it would push more of the salary down the line and you have this now thriving middle class in the nba it worked
2: but they but they fought it though because the, the the union was led by like patrick ewing right. and obviously david falk had a big voice in this yes. and david falk repped, yes but he rep,
0: yes yeah 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 but billy hunter had all these other constituents who were like hey, we're not making anything anymore we're all making the minimum <laughs> it's too much of, so the union had its own incentives. Contrary to the Falk clients, contrary to the the, the superstar class, they had a, a, a ton of support from the rank and file to to redistribute the wealth. And it's why when Michelle Roberts first came in and talked about there shouldn't even be a max contract, I didn't even pay it two seconds of thought because I knew what she would have come to learn in, in, in her early days on the job is that that, 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 that 450 player at any given time constituency – obviously ranks from the the full gamut, from the rookies and minimum guys all the way to the stars. And if you held a vote any given day of her tenure, of Billy Hunter's tenure before that, anytime, anywhere, five years from now, the vast majority are never going to make the max and they're going to vote to keep the max because the vast majority of NBA players by percentage um, are doing better because of the max, as long as we are still operating in a salary cap system. Right. Right. And, and as long as the players are still guaranteed fifty percent of all revenues, and it's just a matter of how it's distributed. So people used to make this argument: oh, the max salary—it's about the owners trying to save money. No, it's not. They got to pay fifty percent of BRI to the players. Period. Everything else is just a matter of how you divide up that piece of the pie. It has nothing. There's no cost savings. It's fifty percent. It's fifty percent, no matter whether LeBron makes a hundred million or fifty million. The players, in the aggregate, will make fifty percent. They have to spend that money by decree of, of the CBA. Well, I'm I'm
1: curious to see what Amin does when he becomes the GM of the Knicks in a couple of years and decides to. Uh,
2: oh, I'm I'm not I'm not, not red right by CA.
1: <laughs> okay, and wherever you, no you where, where, wherever, when you take when you buy the Suns and you decide to run the organization yourself, um, whether you're going to take Bronny James in two years. We'll see. Um, Amin El Hassan, thank you for joining us uh this week. And and Howard Beck, once again, congratulations on the Sports Illustrated uh gig. I'm so happy for you. And I think it's a great sign for just journalism in the NBA space in general, is that um your work gets valued and appreciated and you sports illustrated is very much still a power in this space and it's great 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 to have your byline back out there so congratulations and thank you so much for joining the haber show uh amin uh appreciate you too i won't i won't shower you with praise because uh, i don't know do when it comes to Amin. <laughs> um so thank you guys appreciate you. thank you for no. coming on
0: no thank you thanks for having me tom um love the discussion always a blast thanks amin um and tom i cannot wait to see where you land as well uh the nba media space is better with you in it and uh i'm i'm just uh happy to be on on the haber show again look forward to more of this and look forward to see where you'll be riding because i know you will be back before long too and um yeah uh nba season right around the corner can't even believe it it's here it's here Um, Thank you for that,
1: Howard. And yeah, until next time on The Haber Show.